This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. First of all, today's episode is a chat with Aiden Park, an awesome comic who wrote a book called The Art of Being Yay, and is also a friend of our friend, Sierra, who makes this show. So big shout out to Sierra for being amazing. I also want to mention, oh, and this continues to be so challenging to talk about, that um, y'all have been really supporting the show on Patreon. Since I talked about it last week, a bunch more folks signed up. Um, and you can go to patreon.com slash heyqueeros. And let me talk to you just very candidly about this show. This show has never been something that has uh, made me money or even supported itself. Um, I have been sort of pouring money into it um, since it started, because even when we get ads, it costs um, something to pay for production and to, and to put it out there in the world. And that's been important to me because I love doing the show. And also when I'm traveling around in a non-pandemic time and I um, have other sources of income from the road, to me, it has always felt like I just like love doing this show and break even is my goal. Um, but break even looks a little different these days. Uh, because I have different amount of income coming in right now. Um, so I just want to say that if you love this show, you can keep it going. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash heyqueeros. That's Q-U-E-E-R-O-E-S. You can become a supporter, a patron at many different levels, whatever works for you. And... Either way, I just really appreciate you. You know, it's uh, a niche show like this, a show that is aimed at a specific cultural community and that is about identity. It feels so important to me, and it also is something that is harder to pitch to advertisers um, than, like, a show about sandwiches. <laughs> Which, by the way, why don't I make a show about sandwiches? So I just want to tell you that... Um, you matter to this show, and thank you to everybody that's been supporting it, and please enjoy this episode. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on, darling, I know, I know, I know it's careless. I always have guests introduce themselves. Will you, will you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Aiden Park. I, uh... <laughs> I don't know. It's just so. I like that we both said hi. Rarely do I say hi at the beginning of the podcast, and I like that you also then mirrored that and said hello back, like we haven't previously been talking on this. <laughs> anyway, it's a cute way to start a podcast, and I don't. I yes. don't often say you know hello to the. Per anyway, just but you were c continue but with your I, introduction. You're I'm Aiden grateful Mark. for your hello. Continue. Hello. So am I supposed to be like pretend we're on stage? Okay, he's a. Uh, like that? <laughs> I think that, you know, I'm always curious as to what people will say about themselves because, um, I don't know, like sometimes people list credits or talk about career stuff. Sometimes people talk about 
personal ways that they identify. You know, there's a lot of, it's a lot of wonderful options here. You can sure. use pronouns. People, people can do, many iterations of things have happened. My God, I've never been asked to do this, but I will. Okay, so I wrote a book called The Art <laughs> of Being Yay about finding authentic joy, Yahoo. Um, I am a he, him pronoun. And um, I'm, I'm a comedian and I'm Korean and I'm a badass bitch. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you do have a, you have a great laugh, an important Thank laugh. Thank you. I, as, as a comedian, I feel like that's something that I don't find myself to be a big laugher because uh-huh. I think over time I like trained that out of myself to be, uh-huh. to seem like a tough guy in the comedy world. This is not a good way to be. I'm not, I'm not, uh, pitching this to anybody. Don't be like this. But anyway, <laughs> it's a delight to hear your, uh, very genuine and, and explosive laugh. How? Well, I have a, I have a joke about that. I mean, literally, Tell like me. in the beginning, in the beginning of my career, they were like, okay, I'm a weirdo. You can, t- I'm, I'm, a, well, I'm, a, I'm a bit of, I'm a quirky person. Okay. So <laughs> in the beginning, I thought my jokes were hilarious. So I go up there, I'm like, say a joke. And even if no one thought it was funny, I'd laugh even before I sometimes <laughs> completed the sentence. <laughs> I'd be like, oh yeah. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I didn't say the joke, so you can't laugh with me. Like, I have those moments. And so, but then people were like, man, you shouldn't laugh at your own jokes. And I'm like, I don't care. I think I'm hilarious. I really like it. And uh, people make fun of me, you know. That sounds like like, freedom, what you're describing. (laughs) (laughs) It's freedom. I I feel, I feel, I have that. I do feel free. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and also to be, somebody who works in the comedy space and then write a book about uh, finding authentic happiness. I got to say, for me, um, I'm on that journey myself. I'm trying to, you know, I think we may have a common destination that we hope for. Um, yeah. But that, I, th- I think, is also kind of unusual. I think that ha- having an interest in genuine happiness is, um, I think people that maybe work outside of comedy – that would seem like it makes sense, but that's not been my experience. (laughs) You know, like I I get that the audience is having fun, but I don't usually find that comics are people who are prioritizing joy. Um, Yeah. So will you talk to me? And and I think this is going to continue to be the bulk of what we talk about today, but can you talk to me a little bit about why you would, why you're on that path and, and, have you always been looking for genuine happiness? Joy? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, what happened was I I was um, hit with, you know, a lot of people that I assume I come from privilege because I'm tall and I smile a lot. <laughs> you know, they're like, they, he was definitely born to a couple of dentists in Irvine, you know, and <laughs> that's like not true. Um uh, I actually was an undocumented immigrant raised by a single grandma in government housing and, and, um, uh, on $600 a month on, on, you know, government food boxes, uh, being gay in a very conservative Christian household. I got diagnosed as HIV when I was 19. Very rough, uh, situations. Um, when I was 19, uh, somebody, uh, kind of 
like encouraged me to empower myself by sending me to an empowerment workshop. And so from then until about 33, I threw myself in being effective, like communication, like building successes. Uh, but thinking that I could build, get happy by building those successes until 33, I lose my husband. And when I lose my husband, I become so miserable, it becomes do or die. Forget success, forget money, everything. I need to find a way to be here and feel better than how I was feeling or I will die. I will either kill myself or I will die. So it kind of it was that point that drove me to researching the result of happiness, not the career results. You, you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do know what you mean. Um, I mean, I had a marriage end and it was, it was for a different reason, you know, that we got divorced because I know that your husband died. Yeah. Has been passed. Yeah. Um, I was there with you uh, when you were talking that out. Uh, you came on me and Shantae Wayans' show and you were talking about that. So it, uh, you know, it was complicated, um, I think, for me as a queer person to have, like, I didn't, you know, I, we don't have exactly the same story, but I will say that I really relate to what you're talking about, about this putting together successes, because I I really thought that I would not have a, a positive future when I, when I found out that I was gay, when I was, you know, in college and a Catholic person and thought I was going to hell and, and rejected by, you know, family and friends. I really thought that um, because I got so much negative feedback that my job then for the rest of my life was essentially to like prove them wrong, you mm. know, um, to prove other people wrong about me and to prove to myself that they were wrong about me. Mm. Um, and it just, for me, it ended up looking like generating a lot of successes or seeming to be very successful. And I was successful. Um, you know, in a lot of ways I still am, but I think that it shifted this, um, this big heartbreak that I felt so powerless over. I think that just the feeling of powerlessness after thinking that, um, the way to happiness was to empower myself, literally the word you just used to change people's mind, to realize that like, I can't control everything on the planet and I'm wasting, um, maybe not wasting, but I'm focusing all my resources on that and not my own personal happiness. Yeah. Um, well, you know, what was, what was that? Can we talk a little bit about, um, yeah. losing your husband and what that was like? Sure. Um, uh, it was okay. Terrible. So I was, <laughs> it was the worst. <laughs> I'm going to guess was, it was terrible. Yeah. It was terrible. It was so much worse than than one might imagine. I, I did not expect this kind of um, uh, terribleness. So what, what happened was uh, we were in each other's lives from top to bottom. He would be my stage dad. He would come to my daddy. Huh? He would come to my uh, stage shows and be like, baby, I thought you were going to do this and this and this. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, he was he was uh, he and I, uh, we had a great relationship. And then he got diagnosed with cancer. Um, he, one day in March, he just blew up, uh, his, his, um, uh, lymph nodes got big. 
Um, is this the question you're asking, by the way? Am I in yes. line with the answer? Okay. Yes. So when that happened, within a month, he was on oxygen tanks and we found out it was stage four. It's in his lungs and it's in his stomach. It's in his um, lymph nodes. Um, it's everywhere. Um, he was so in so much pain. He was on so much Norco and oxycodone. And as a as someone watching... I mean, I don't know if you, you, I, it sounds like you and I had a similar way of dealing with our pain was like learning all the empowerment tools so that we can move forward in a way that is going to make sure that we are safe by managing yes. results, right? That's right. Yes. <laughs> so, and well, so, I'm very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think this is funny because like when he got sick, I tried to manage it in the same way. I listened to a book called Relentless by um a guy who uh coached like Shaquille O'Neal like these basketball players and I was listening to things like when Shaquille O'Neal got sick he played through his ripped Achilles heel and I was like okay like this is it Michael's gonna be cured and that's the end of it so I tracked down black market CBD oil that wasn't approved by the FDA that was to be injected. Um, I like um, went to a holistic healer, did energy work, bought this thing that was supposed to heat infrared. I know a lot about cancer. If any of the listeners need help with this, infrared heating from the inside out to raise your body temperature past what you're supposed to have for cancers to survive. I approached it so tactically as if I was going to war and he was in so much pain. And he was like, baby, I can't drink a gallon of water. I'm going to puke. And I was like, and I, and this is the one part I didn't know. You don't know what you don't know. Right. But I wish I would have been more caretaking instead of that, because I was like, you drink that water. We're trying to survive here, like going harder. Um, yeah. But I, I and, under, you know, I mean, I, well, I want to ask a question. Um, what was your, so, you know, you talked about his being surprised. A, having a supportive role in your life, but what was your husband like? What was he like as a person? What was he, what did he do? How did you guys meet? Um, we met on a website called Bareback Real Time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we like sex, okay? Wait, we like sex. Wait. <laughs> wait, wait, you don't know about this? Wait, you don't know about this website? Why would you? No, I don't know. I mean, and by the way, no, I don't know about Bareback Real Time. Is it like, is it, are you watching stuff or is it just for hookups? It's just for hookups. Um, it's, you know, and, and he and I met and for whatever reason, he didn't want to have sex with me the first time. And I was like, why are we not having sex? Because if the sex isn't good, then there's going to, I have enough friends, sir. And then, <laughs> and then <laughs> second, but he liked my gusto, you know? Um, and so we went on a couple more dates and then we slept together and it was fire. And since then we were kind of attached at the hip. He was a, um, a successful, uh, real estate person until 2008 when everything fell apart for him. He, uh, he had oh, 10 right. properties out. Compl so he came in with millions of dollars in debt and bankruptcies on his file. Um, and, um, he had a heart. So he was in New York. He moved to Hawaii, had a heart attack there. Um, while he was trying to start his new life and he 
moved to Los Angeles because he met somebody in Hawaii and came to LA. And he was kind of in a place where he was down on his luck. And so when we met, we really, he loved, he was very certain. He was a very like loyal, certain guy. He was like very New Yorker. He was like, this is it. That's it, baby. That's it. I don't care. Like, this is what I feel. And that's it. And I love that because I'm like that. Um, and it's an empowered way to be, as you know. Empowerment doesn't doesn't necessarily encourage people to be uh, wishy-washy. They want you to make a decision and kind of go forward, right? So I was like that, and he was also like that. And so we together were – but also we met each other's emotional needs. I, I, he, I would say I had one true love of my life. It was Michael. You know, wow. it was just, oh, and I, I just love that. I back real time for a, t- <laughs> a second. Sure, sure. Does this, does this, is that still a site that's like popular? It's still a site. Yeah. Is it also an app? It's like, not an app. Is that like still how somebody would meet people? No. Yeah, I, I, I used it. <laughs> I mean, this is great to know. So just to, I mean, and you can also decline this question. I just have not sure. had somebody sure. that I had the opportunity to ask this question to. And I think there's a sure. lot of listeners who would benefit from this. So sure. um, feel free to decline if you want to. Okay. Um, okay. You know, you already talked about your pause status. Right, so right. what happens, how does somebody, when somebody is positive, how do you navigate a site that is called Bareback Real Time? I know it it's possible, right. yeah. but can you can you tell me how to do it? It says right there your status, and I say on I'm your positive. little yeah. on your little profile. Yes, and um, actually, I work with a lot of HIV organizations as a result. So I wrote the book, and I, I'm open about my HIV status. So, like, I work with a lot of HIV uh, organizations, and what they're really wanting to promote is undetectable equals untransferable. So. I'm undetectable. I don't have uh, viral copies in my blood. Uh, you know, I take care of myself and, you know, I, uh, I'm on, you know, antivirals. And so it would not be possible for me to give you if we were to suddenly have a change of heart and run off together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then, um, you know, uh, I couldn't transfer to you you know, as a top or bottom or whatever. So that is something that they're really working on. So it's actually encouraged to manage your HIV and and be undetectable because you're less dangerous than someone who says they're negative, but does not know. And they, yeah, right. So. Yes. I'm like, my hands are going ferociously, but this (laughs) is, I think, a thing that even within the queer community, um, I don't know that we talk about very much, especially because there's a huge divide, I think, between like um, people who were assigned female at birth and like lesbian, like dyke culture. And then like um, a sort of a cis gay dudes and trans women like like there's a really big divide in terms of who is affected by HIV. Like Mm -hmm. like we are not universally as a. As a community, we're not universally affected by this. Um, yes. And so I think that there's a lot of, I think that when, and also when we look at like media or culture, a couple, we're like st- just starting or a couple of years ago, we're starting to do those like shows about white gay men that were, that like were having, you know, experiences in the 80s and 90s. 
Yeah, um, yeah. Being positive, which again, totally different. Like that's the AIDS crisis. That's not where we are right now in terms of like best paths forward. And so I don't think we talk a lot about this. And Mm-mm. because I wouldn't necessarily even be on the same dating site that you're on, like I have no idea, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. But here navigating. we are, Cameron. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it, you know? And I think I think that that's, it's a really, um, I th- you know, we're still sort of having this weird 90s understanding in some parts of the queer community and then certainly outside of the queer community. And so to what you're talking about, which is like disclosing status, but then also taking care of yourself and and having um, and being unable to pass it on because of your viral load like that. I don't think we talk about that very much as much as that's a part of like gay male culture. I don't know, you know that we are talking about that as a culture yet. You know what's interesting about about that is uh, one would think that that would be a really difficult conversation. But what's yeah. really interesting that I found is when I go on dating sites that are not, I mean, partially it's almost easier for me to go on bareback real time because um, you just disclose that right away. But when you go on Tinder, when you go on Facebook dating, like how do you navigate that? And what's been interesting is that um, I, I've, I've, I've done um, a lot of work as far as just deshaming the whole HIV process. Like I used to be very ashamed of it and hide that. And when you start, you know, as you know, when you're ashamed of something and you start talking about it on stage, it kind of de- it's a healing, deshaming kind of process. Um, yeah, and so, absolutely. Yeah, right? <laughs> so whatever. Uh, so what, what I found is the attitude with which I approach the topic is how they respond. So it's not to do with HIV necessarily. A a lot of times, if I'm on a date one-on-one, I go, yeah, I'm HIV positive and undetectable. And I say it with surety and clarity of what I know. They usually respond with, oh yeah, what does that mean? As opposed to, oh, I'm I'm HIV positive. Is that okay? Then there's like something to, you know, so... Right. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think when you're talking about shame and, you know, why something like stand-up would work and then applying that to what you're talking about now, you know, a lot of shame is – shame thrives in secret. Like when we keep secrets, then it's it's like this compounding effect. Like the bigger the secret, the longer it's kept, the more relationships we create in our lives where that is not part of things. You know, that I think – the shame around that, and that's for me when I, you know, was first using stand-up in this way you're talking about, it was because I just wanted the most number of people to know that I was gay at a time. Like, I literally was yeah, just like, yeah. how can I tell hundreds of people at a time that I'm gay, you know, because I feel so <laughs> fucked up about this, right? And Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, I didn't even have that conscious thought, but that's definitely what I was doing. And so it makes sense to me that, like— coming out on stage about your status over time, yeah. you know, it, it just makes it less scary because, um, because people know. And so for, for folks who aren't comics, <laughs> I would say that, you know, this also works in your, you know, in friendships and your, in your yeah. non-stage life. That's certainly how I use this now. You know, I try yeah. to make sure that there aren't things that I'm experiencing that people yeah. don't know about. Even yeah. if they're things I'm embarrassed of. Yeah. It's a constant process. It's like, 
I just had one a couple weeks ago. Like, I I was always ash- like ashamed of my sexual. There was a, there was a part of me that was ashamed of my sexuality, and like you know, in the I don't know what kind of empowerment work you've done, but like uh, the empowerment work that I do is like I kind of like you have to go and find what is your trigger, follow that back to where you have disidentified from that part of yourself. So I'm like, oh, the sexuality annoys me. What is that about? And I trace that back. And, you know, I was molested when I was four. And I, all this time, actually, not even conscious, thought it was my fault. All these years. And it's like, as a result of that, I took the part of myself that is sexual, that represents sexuality and put it in a room and never fed that part of myself. So it's like integration of that, which is a part of you. Because it doesn't go yeah. away and it longs to be loved. Yeah, I so hear you. I've been thinking a lot about some of this stuff more recently myself because I've been having like a lot of questions come up about gender that I had never thought of before. I, I in that like I'm watching a lot of people in my community make choices to go by different pronouns or um, – to get top surgery, you know, or to go on low doses of tea. And those are folks that I um, have something in common with in terms of like on a gender spectrum. And I'm just noticing it happening and it's giving me a chance to reflect on how I think I am actually like truly ashamed, even to this day, that like I am not the right girl. And I don't even say mm-hmm, woman because mm-hmm. I really, it's really that little kid, you know, you say four years old, it's really that age yeah. person, you know, it's not like me thinking that the shirts I wear today are stupid. It's like me being five. Yeah. Unsure of like, well, why can't people get what I'm doing? Why are yeah. people questioning, you, you know, me? You know and what's it, funny? It is. That shit is deep. <laughs> It's it's so it's so I, I, I'm so I'm so sorry I don't mean to interrupt you. Tell me, tell I, me, I, I, come I, on. I was like, Dude. but like as a kid, and this is so important for everybody to you know if they're experiencing something like this, it's important for people to know. As a kid, right? So this is how it kind of works. As a kid, you're born into a family dynamic, and literally, when your parents disapprove of you or distance themselves from you, the kid cannot survive on his or her own or their own. And so um, they must now figure out a way to become close with the parent again. That is survival, unable to take care of themselves. And so now they have to rely on the parent. So you must line up with whatever your parents say is right as an act of survival. You do not have a choice when you're born. So then when we're born and then people don't understand us, we go, ah, this part is dangerous. Put that part over there. Oh, that's dangerous. Put that part over there and disidentify, which causes a lot of pain. And sometimes we go, I don't want to be, this is me. I don't want to be, the part of me that's sexual is bad. And then I go, well, why is the part of me that sexual is bad? Well, I'm going to go way on the other side and go on bareback real time and screw 17 guys at once as a reaction to the reaction <laughs> right, to right, prove right. a point. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Uh, I sure do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I, do you 17 guys really, Cameron? <laughs> I've, honestly, it's, I've never, I have, 
I'll be totally real. I've never had sex with 17 guys at once, but have I had my version of that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I've maybe had my version of that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Well, I want to ask you, because you you mentioned that you were an undocumented immigrant. And and then you also mentioned being raised by your grandmother. And if you could talk to me a little bit about that time in your life. And, you know, what, what, how did you end up in the US. Okay, so my mom w- w- raised me as a single mom in Korea and I swear this will happen. One day I went to school and a kid said, "I'm not allowed to play with you anymore because you don't have a father and that is why you act like this." This is what oh, that's sure. what he told me. And so I went home and I told my mom and she was like, "What did he say?" She was holding a rice scooper. <laughs> She, and she ran out the door to confront him with the rice scooper in her hand, leaving me, a seven-year-old, alone in the video store that we uh, owned. <laughs> and I was like, what do I do? <laughs> and she comes back 15 minutes later and she was like, we're going to the Un- United States because I don't think this kind of bullshit happens there. We don't have papers, though. So what she arranges is for us to fly into Mexico and get fake IDs from people who live here and drive through the border presenting those fake IDs. And this was 1994 when everybody thought all Asians looked the same, so they didn't even check. So they just (laughs) waved us through and we were in. Wow. Yeah, 1994, when people thought all Asians looked the same, as opposed to 2021. Or 2020, when they still do. And number two, the president was waging war against Asian Americans, like within the last, well, our former president now. But you know Um, what, Cameron? Like, you know, like, I'm just as guilty because, you know, at the comedy store, you know, those like white guys in hoodies. I cannot tell them apart. I can't, I, I can meet, I meet so many of them. I don't know. And I'm told well, this Asian. <laughs> and, I mean, what and I so they're like, Aiden, that is like, like, yeah, I think sociologically the research is that we have a hard, humans have a hard time telling people who are of a different race apart. That's true for really? all of us. Sociologically, okay. that's true. That being okay. said, um, White people say that <laughs> like on TV, like you might be say- you might be thinking that in your head, but then white people say it on TV, like, um, while also, y- you know, or the police say that it's, it's, it matters who's in power. Although um, that may be sociologically true. It does matter who's in power. Oh my um, God. It's so bad. But like, I, maybe I have facial blindness because I'll, I'll watch Korean dramas and I'll still be like. Wait, but he was with her. No, he's another character. No, wait, he was with... But then in Korea, there's a problem of whitening everybody's skin and making everybody's nose look the same, let's be honest. So, like, that's another problem. So, uh... So I can't tell the characters apart. And I'm always confused. And then my white friends, actually, are the ones who are like, Aiden, what do you mean you can't... You're Asian. And I'm like, I can't tell them apart! (laughs) So, you know. Well, I don't even know. I mean... (laughs) I don't even watch those shows. That's 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 my problem in this conversation. It's all right. It's all right. You know, uh, but uh, well, yes. What what is your life like now in the wake of this big loss? So finding comedy. When did that happen in your life? <laughs> you you might be like, okay, this conversation's over. I was one of those actor people who were like, I'm going to do this to help my acting career. <laughs> I was, like, so sick of doing musicals. I was like, if I have to do another production of Miss Saigon, I'm going to kill someone. So I'll do oh, this. Yeah. 
Oh, wow. Nine of them. I did nine of them. You did nine productions of Miss Saigon. Yeah. I went to China to do Miss Saigon. That means that people from China flew to the United States to find a Korean to fly to China to play a Vietnamese person. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So you knew that I you wanted nine. to be an actor. I did. Uh, but then once I started doing uh, stand-up, that became my main passion instead of acting. Because I've never quite fit, maybe like you, like I never quite, I could... I never fit into a box that they could just put me in. I wasn't very easily played. So, like, I did musicals, but I was kind of an oddball. So it was, I'm a strange fit. Right. Did you have, did you always have long hair? No, this is new. I made it shorter before. I always kept it short. I always tried to fit in, but I. That's why I'm asking, because I would imagine that that would affect casting. Um, yeah. Although it looks beautiful. And Thank you. Please keep it. Yes. <laughs> um, but when you were trying to break into the acting world, yeah, I hear what you're saying about you being impl- un, you know, unplaceable for other people in that yeah. world for sure. I have seen television and movies. Um, did you? Were you trying to? What did you think about this? You know, your personality is so bubbly and sweet but i'm imagining like i don't know i mean it re- you, you know you read like a awesome queer dude to me and like you read like a gay dude to me you know like yeah, i love that yeah. and was there a time when you were trying to hide that or change that yeah. at all because i, w- I would yeah. just imagine it would make things even more difficult i, w- I was always <laughs> i have this joke every time i would do a musical the director would be like aiden butch it up which you're really gay if you have to butch it up for musicals you know what i mean <laughs> Sure. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. (laughs) Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! For, for years, I was like, that's part of the happiness thing, that thing, right? It's like the acting world is so interesting because it is an industry based on meeting someone's criteria that they're putting on you. So if you're an right. actor, you, where's your identity? Where's what you have to offer? You, unless you're already famous, like, you know, say Mila Kunis is Mila Kunis and that's why she's so amazing, right? But say Aiden Park comes in and he's not a part of the industry, they have to put you in for a co-stars or guest stars easily, easily placeable. So individuality is, is reserved for those big stars that are already stars. And the people who are, are the day players have to just fit in. And I could not get arrested. I was like, 
and I would try this and try that, work out, keto, butch it up, gay it up, or right. become a nerd, or uh, everything. And nothing worked because <laughs> there's a falsehood in putting that on. And that yeah. falsehood is a distancing act from yourself, right, in a way. And that contributes to unhappiness, in my opinion, unless you have a really strong grounding, which I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, I also yeah. sometimes have felt, um, I have sometimes felt bummed for the types of things that I got asked to come in for because of how the character was written. It's not just somebody putting something on you, but like literally, I mean, the, <laughs> if people are looking for like a person to play a lesbian, they're either looking for like a straight woman, honestly. I mean, some of this is like newly just beginning to change, but they're looking for like a straight woman who's going to get um, press about playing a lesbian, or they're looking for like a queer woman who is going to be like disgusting or the butt of the joke. And so oftentimes I would be going in for, I actually recently stopped um, going in for auditions where the character description was like horrifying or the things that the character said were things that I felt were like objectively awful. Good for you. Like for instance, <laughs> I recently turned on something where my character or the character that they were asking me to read for was um, was describing her body as a truck, a broken down truck multiple times. And I just felt like, oh man, this is tough that this is what you see when you see me, you know, Um, if you think I'm right for this. Horrifying. Uh, Horrifying to find out what you might be right for. (laughs) I got an audition one time for a character named Ming. I am not joking. This was like, <laughs> you can already, this character named Ming is the description read five foot five Asian drag queen must be able to pass as a woman speaks fluent Taiwanese. And I'm like, I'm six foot one. Like, what do you want me to do? Like, chainsaw my legs and get rosacea stone? Like, what, what, you know, Rosetta stone? I'm sorry, whatever the hell that is. Like, what well, do I do? Rosetta stone is a different thing. That's <laughs> to learn. That's how you learn how to speak with dermatologists. Okay, that's keep right. going. And then the manager, I swear to God, I was like, I, and I, I was so flabbergasted. So I called the manager and I was like, I don't speak Taiwanese, you know? And he's like, just speak Korean. They're not going to know. Just go. Wow. And so like an idiot, I was more desperate back then. So I went, did my makeup and I walk in, I'm six foot two, clearly, right? And I, But I did my makeup and the casting director, not kidding. Oh, thank God. Oh, great. You're here. Awesome. Let's go see you. And I'm like, did you not read the character description? So I <laughs> go into the room and they're like, just speak any Asian language. I'm not even kidding. That is exactly what happened. And just speak I was, any Asian language. And I believe you I, fully. But I was pinned. Of course. I was pinned for that job. And I'm like, oh I didn't get it, but I was pinned for that job. And I'm like, I'm wrong for this on so many levels. And they don't care. They just want a gay Asian. I don't know why, what happened. <laughs> but with a laugh like that, you know. <laughs> so talk to me about how you are doing now. Um, because well, I know that 
you know, I know that you went through this great loss and that you had this huge shift in your sort of mental space and, and how you were approaching the world. What is, how does that work in your daily life or how are you in dating? Are you dating? Do you date? Yes, but um, I'm really happy. Can I share the one thing that I think was the most important from the book that I think people could, yes. you know, what I, I learned that uh, from my friend Jackie Monahan, you might know who Jackie Monahan is. Yeah, I know um, Jackie. I, I love Jackie. I was so sad having lunch with her a couple months after I I I I, uh, I lost Michael, and she was like, "Aiden, <laughs> you need to look within and figure out what you're missing." And Michael and learn to give that to yourself. And then I was like, okay, what is this girl on? And then I (laughs) thought about it. And what she meant was emotionally. Like, what is he providing you emotionally? And so I had a moment where I tried this. So it was, Michael was the financial guy. And I lost a $3,000 check. And I immediately started crying. And this was like a month or two after Michael died. I was just like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. Um, And then I remembered what Jackie told me about identifying, because it's all about emotions at the end, actually. So the reason why I might want empowerment is so that I can feel safety. Or the reason why I might want to go on a trip might be because I want excitement. Or if you really kind of track down what you're going for and that thing you say you want, it's an emotional end for sure. You know, whatever it is. Um, a pizza, or a, you know, a, a turkey during Thanksgiving is not turkey during Thanksgiving. It's holiday familiarity. It's a comfort, right? So when I lost that check, I thought about if Michael were here, what would he give me emotionally? And the answer to that was, you know, he would provide me with comfort and security. And so now that I've identified that, I have to, hmm, how do I give myself the comfort and security Michael once provided for me? Because there's no voodoo that can bring him back from the dead. There's no, and I've scattered his ashes, so I can't bury him in Pet cemetery. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> so yeah, that's a, that's a job. So I went on actively finding whatever, every time I missed him, I actively thought about what is it that I'm missing emotionally and work to give myself that thinking creatively, like talking to myself in Michael's terms. It's all right, baby. It's just another check and it's fine. He has a New York accent. He's an older guy. So it's fine, baby. Or, um, talking myself down or maybe just relaxing and meditating, just whatever that will deliberately and making a deliberate choice to take care of my emotions um, kind of helped me. And so I started using that every time I hit up against anything. I'm like, I'll be sitting in traffic and I'm frustrated. I want this traffic to move. Why? I want peace and, you know, uh, some peace because I feel so great. Turn on some Enya and breathe in three, breathe out three. Like, and I can give myself that. The more you do that, the more emotional empowerment you feel, the more you feel you can do this, and the more you can feel stronger in giving yourself those experiences that you miss. 
And that is happiness. When you can give yourself the emotion, people want a million dollars. They want a million dollars because they think that once they get the million dollars, they'll have power or security or money. You're bypassing the middleman and going directly for the emotion. And you know, you can do that. That's empowerment. That's happiness. It's a done deal. It's perfect. And I, I, I mean, I, this is what I'm, I'm working on the same thing, to be honest. Um, I think that the way you just articulate it though, and, and, I think that's, it's, I don't know if I've heard somebody articulate exactly how you articulate it, which is, which is wonderful, but I, but I, I hear you. And I think especially as queer folks who, it's that thing that we were talking about earlier, like most of us, the sort of boilerplate queer experience is that at some point when we were probably pretty little, somebody told us something was off about us. Yeah. Yeah. So there is like this tripped sense of unsafety, you know, getting that bit of information yeah. that when you have that feeling just going into the world, like, okay, I'm a child, I'm immediately unsafe. Um, you know, that's a lot to come back from. And, yeah, you know, we do then celebrate queerness with parades, you know, or with like, an unbridled freedom in our sexuality that maybe like straight people never even try to experience because we felt so much shame. Then we were like, actually, just so you know, I'm actually, I'm super stoked on fucking, you know, Um, or like, you know, gay dudes with like really flexed out bodies, you know, who Mm -hmm. were told that they were too effeminate or, or whatever the thing might be. Um, And I do think that a lot of us, you know, live our life in this reaction to that earlier thing. And what you're talking about is sort of essentially, you know, how I think about it is, is stopping some of that reactivity and not just going to toward these sort of earlier wounds, but thinking about like, what would make me feel good in this moment? And, um, so not just the driving and the car movement, but also like, I've been really working hard on the last two years on having like a very close group of friends that knows me really well as opposed to a cool group of friends I party with. And that has been a big shift for me. Um, But like, oh, it turns out when you have a cool group of friends you party with all the time, you don't always feel like people know you. Yeah. So what is the action then that, you know, that that I could take to give that to myself? And that's exactly the type of thing I've been doing. Is that, is that an actual question that you want me to address or is that, is that just something you're thinking? It's, it's, uh, does that resonate with you in how you're talking about happiness intersecting yeah. with specifically with queer trauma? Because yeah, yeah, I yeah. think for this show, that's extra I think important. Queer trauma is, I mean, the, literally, I, I think I wouldn't have been so, you know, when I was molested, the, the four years old, what happened was I watched an American soap opera. And I swear this ties back. I'm not going off on a tangent. Um, um, I watched an American soap opera where people were making out. And in Korea, you just do family kiss, right? And I, I, I told a family member, I was like, well, instead of doing that, why don't we do that? We should do that as a four-year-old, not knowing anything. And he went for it. And it created for, and it went on for a while and it created a lot of confusion because as a kid, I, it felt good. Right. So I didn't know. And I thought I was, there was something broken and wrong with me 
that I like that at such a young age, even as a gay person and as a, what is this like, am I a succubus that born into this? Like, um, uh, uh, seducing grown men into things that they didn't want to do. What is wrong with me? And to disidentify from that part of myself completely. And you can see it in my work, actually. If you look at my early comedy work, there is no sex integrated into it because my public persona, I felt it was dangerous to present that part of myself because it brought me so much pain. And so as it relates to queer trauma, I think it's really important to um, trace back to what are the aspects of ourselves that we've separated and disidentified from, right? So like, I'm this kid who ha- who is innocent because that sexuality got me in trouble. And so I am this, but there's another part. And so how do we integrate? As queers, I think we have a lot of disintegration traumas. I think that's so, so... uh it's hard. <laughs> and it's hard to manage. Is it a reaction? Am I reacting to the reaction? Or because I could say, well, this is who I am. I am, you know, I'm just this person. Well, no, I've come to learn that that's not that's, that's something that I put on as a defense. Right. So how do we ride that line? It requires a lot of looking within. And, uh, yeah, I th- I think that's what I was trying to get to is the the fact that in terms of looking f- for what we need to to find true happiness that that if you have a marginalized identity that is even more difficult because looking oh. for what you need is complicated because we've been told we not have been, to <laughs> yes like, yeah, what you exactly. need is wrong and so you look for this. And so that, and you know, that's gaslighting also. So I feel like as queer people, especially, I'm sorry, uh, and and let me know if I'm speaking out of turn here, but like as queer women, lesbians and like queer women, women are already marginalized. And then you guys are, they just tell you what to do and expect you to act whatever. And then, right. So there's gaslighting already. And then there's gay gaslighting on top of that. It's like. Is it true? <laughs> Maybe someday you would get to. It's like you're told you're delusional or crazy because that's basically what they tell women, right? You're delusional and you're crazy, and it's yeah, like hysterical. You're hy- you're hysterical. You're off in your assessment. No, you're a narcissist. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Aiden, I want to ask you. Um, how, you know, in healing from all this, and you talked about your friend Jackie, um, but were there other folks or people or, you know, if for anybody that's listening that does have somebody going through the type of loss that you went through, you know, what sort of guidance would you give our listeners um, about how they could be helpful or what they could do to approach a friend or family member who might be going through what you went through? Um. How would I do this? I will say this. Um, as my defense, I was like, everything's fine. I did like 18 comedy shows a week. <laughs> I was like, go, 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 go. I'm yeah, fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> I kept myself busy. <laughs> and uh, I would say that, you know, on the day that Michael died, 
I got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, of, like literally hundreds of phone calls. Um, a month after that, it's, it's kind of didn't, right? And not that, of course, of course, natural, but I think it's important that there's sustained support for a little while. Um, right. And I think that that's important. Uh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. Also, this, this I think is important. I think that um, an, a, 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 a popular approach will be like, oh, you're fine. Oh, it's fine. Well, we can just go to the movies. It'll be fine. We'll just go to the bar. We'll, um, uh, that kind of implies that there's something wrong with the emotional experience. Like, this is not okay. And so uh, negative emotions are okay. And it is, I think it, it's, you know, actually when you have like a, a cut or something, the pain is actually um, an aid to healing. The pain, like experiencing the pain is actually an aid to healing. As opposed to if you pop an aspirin, it doesn't heal as fast. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like, yeah, um, there's a thing. That's why fevers, right? Like, so like you have a fever in reaction to, a, you know, some kind of infection and it's kind of your body trying to raise the internal temperature to kill the whatever the invader is. Right. But if we take an aspirin, we get rid of that side effect that helps us heal. Right, 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 right. right. So being with the pain being with somebody who is in pain and holding the space for them as opposed to trying to fix it as if there's something wrong with the pain. Because there's nothing really wrong with the pain. You have to move through it. Otherwise, yeah. it's another aspect that you've put away. <laughs> and you as know? you were doing 18 shows a week or, or whatnot, did you then have to, was there a moment where you had to stop and, ju and just be in pain? I had, I had three panic attacks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, it was, it was not good. Um, I, I ended up, I was, I had a panic attack and <laughs> this is funny. I had a panic attack and, uh, well, now it's funny. I had a panic attack in upstate Washington. I think you're going to gag when you hear this. I had a panic attack in upstate Washington. It was rural because I took on a contract job where I was working 17 hours a day and I didn't care. I just wanted to just keep working and not think. And my arms froze up and I was, hurled over in in this rural upstate Washington gas station. Then this dude came and he said, can I pray for you? And I thought, oh, sure. Thoughts and prayers for loved ones, whatever. He put his hand on my back and raised the other hand to the sky and said, Lord, please help this man. And then a crowd gathered watching me. I look up. He looks just like Nickelback. And I'm like... <laughs> And I'm looking over him and there's like pastures and cows. And then oh he didn't even God. give me a water or anything. He was a like, good luck, man. And then he put away. And I was like, <laughs> okay. Wow. But, um, the EMTs were called and, and this was like, it was a dangerous scenario because the longer I went, I, I tried to manage my grief in the same way that I managed everything up until that point. Fixing what's around me. To, and so I started dating right away. Not a great idea. I started fucking everybody. Not a great idea. I started working extra, extra. Not a great idea. Even meeting friends every single day for lunch, because that's what you're supposed to do to aid your healing every single day. Go, go, go. And just running from the wound. 
Yeah. And it creates a, no wonder why I had, I had panic attacks and, <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a festering of the thing because there's, there's not even, you know, uh, I certainly relate to that in the way I've dealt with pain in my life. And um, it is hard to just, to just be in it. Um, it is, it's really hard. Can I, can I I, uh, share a technique about that? Actually, it's really helpful. You might, you might like it. So uh, this is a neuro-linguistic programming technique, right? And so what I like to do uh, when I coach clients, I I have some clients that I coach, which is um, you scan your body and when there's a triggering element. So if I go, if I think about, let's say I thought about something uh, like, like, let me, I'll just use Michael as an example. I think about Michael, you know, Michael's death. And basically your emotions translate to your body as a, as a physical reaction. So if you close your eyes, you can actually almost see and place where the origination of that wound is. It might be in your heart. It might be in your stomach. It might be in your throat, wherever it is. And you feel it once you identify the origin you can give it a color and a shape so that you're actually feeling it and seeing it for what it is on, with your internal eyes and you sit with it. And that way it's disconnected from any analysis. You have, you have brain analysis. Oh, this is wrong. This is right. Blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. We're looking at a blue cylinder in my throat that's moving clockwise. Let's just be with it. We're observing it. And it forces you to stay present with your emotions and not analyzing it. And after a while, it changes shape and it loosens up and that emotion is felt. And then you will see that when you hit that trigger again, it's like a wound. If you, if you have a cut and then you cover it up with duct tape and it's festering in there, like you said, right, festering. And then it's like finally you're cutting off the duct tape and you're letting it see the light. And once it heals... Before then, if it was wrapped in duct tape, you would touch it and go, ah, ow, that hurts so much. Now it's closed. So, you know, so I find that that's a really helpful technique that I used a lot, being there with your emotions and kind of separating from the mental analysis of it all. Wow. Well, I mean, I will try that. (laughs) (laughs) It works. It's great. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, I will try that. I have have people who... Um, yeah, tell I'm me. Sorry. No, I have people who've done that and then they couldn't sleep for like months and they released an, a core anxiety. And so our, your bodies literally are react. It's like, you know, when your spine goes out of alignment and all of your muscles seize up around that, that misalignment and it makes it so that you can't heal your spine because you're misaligned and your muscles are reacting to the misalignment thinking it's helping. So you relax it and it snaps back into place. And then, right? So it's like people who couldn't sleep, people who have, um, what is it called? Uh, procrastination issues, blah, blah, blah. Like any, whatever their big bugaboo is, it's emotionally related and usually related to an unfelt emotion that's holding them apart from whatever they want. Well, we'll talk, we'll just get on a separate Zoom later. <laughs> 
<laughs> at a different time, and you can talk me through all of this. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's my favorite topic. Wanna, That's why I nerd out. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you before, we're almost at the end of our, our chat, and I, I always have folks shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing that made them feel that they could be who they are today. And I'm wondering if you want to shout out a queero. Margaret Cho. Margaret Cho. She wrote the foreword to my book. She was kind enough to do that. And it's a big thing for me because I moved to the United States in 1994. That was the year that All American Girl was on television. And I saw her as an Asian person on TV and I was so amazed. Then a few years later, she came out with, I'm the one that I want when I was struggling with my queer identity. And she talked so positively about the LGBT community that I didn't, I felt less alone. And then I wanted to do yeah. stand-up comedy and she was an, inf- I watched Notorious uh, CHO and I just saw how amazing she was at being herself. And I was like, I could be myself on stage and maybe be as good as Margaret one day. And for her to be so generous to write me a foreword and a recommendation for the book and be my friend. Like I call her, she picks up. I have Margaret Cho in my phone, she picks up. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God. That's, it's, she's such a generous spirit and I can't, I, I'm so grateful for her. I can't even. Yeah. Margaret is the, that's the, she's the first comic I ever saw live when I was <sighs> 22 and I was with my girlfriend, um, who, who is Korean and it was a huge deal for her that we were seeing Margaret for that reason. Then I was, had been doing improv in college, but I didn't really even know that stand up existed. Anyway, we went to see Margaret together and, um, yeah, that was like still, that still to this day, that's one of the strongest performances I've ever seen. You know, she was so good and it was in a theater and that's how I, that's the first time I saw stand up. No wonder I thought that I wanted to do this. Thank God that it wasn't good. somebody that was, a. I don't know, some dirt bag in, in a comedy club that hasn't changed their act in 35 years. You know, like I saw Margaret. Can I like that's the tell first you something though? Yeah, tell I me. I have to tell you. As, as, okay, so Margaret was amazing, right? And then, and then I saw, I, when I was first starting to get, <laughs> this is a hilarious story. When I was, I, I, I took a stand-up comedy class to, to get my feet wet. And when I was going to that class, I was really scared. And then I saw a special by someone else, right? And I was just like, this is just, and they're laughing. Yeah. And I was like, and then I thought, wait, this means I don't have to be amazing every time. I can be just okay and get That's good right. results. <laughs> So why not just do it? I mean, surely after a little while, got to be funnier than that guy. So, (laughs) so I definitely, I'm grateful for those people too. Yeah. 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 It's the other side of what I'm talking about. When you see the thing and you go, oh shit, that's nothing. All right, fine. Sign me up. It's like, oh, I can do that. Oh, I'm certainly funnier than that. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) And the Facebook and the, and the YouTube thumbs up and thumbs down were like 50, 50. And I'm like, I just need 50%. This is fine. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, I'm fine. (laughs) Great. Yeah. Fair enough. I know yeah, he's making money. It's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Aiden, I have loved talking to you and thank um, you. I'm you too. Super excited to promote the book and also to continue to make my own standup. That's hopefully better than a 50, 50 review. Like, let's hope <laughs> we don't know. 
I feel like, yeah, no, that that's what kind of made me continue to laugh at my own jokes. I was like, people seem to like it and some people don't, whatever. I only need 50-50. Like, who cares? Right, like, yeah, I like exactly. it. And I'm the deciding vote. Here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm the deciding vote. I am the Kamala yeah. Harris. I'm the Kamala yes. Harris deciding vote. And I yep. like it. So screw you. Perfect. All. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Awesome.